when I heard about the conveyor belt of death that the politicians were trying to set in motion, I guess I knew that I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't come back and try to do something. Thank you, sir. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Okay. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on Oregon's Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on 94.1 FM WGRN. In Palinville, New York, on WLPP 102.9 FM. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast and a co- coast to coast and around the globe. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly, if somewhat irritated, uh, blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, I am a little irritated. And, Why are you irritated? Uh, oh, hi, Desi Doyen, <laughs> our producer, Desi Doyen. Why am I irritated? Well, i got to yes. tell you, because uh, we got a lot to get to today, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But Vice President Mike Pence today... Uh, speaking about North Korea to CNN, I guess he's in Asia for a 10 day tour. Um, and he was speaking about North Korea to uh, Dana Bash uh, on CNN. And, and well, he had this to say among his comments. As the president says, it's time for them to behave. Now, look, I'm no fan. I'm no fan of North Korea and its insane leader, Kim Jong-un, and what he's doing to the North Korean people, what his father did to them, what his grandfather did. But in the last days and weeks and months and years, the U.S. has killed hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Innocent civilians in our various military exploits and bombing attacks and drone strikes and cruise missile attacks in all around the world, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, and in now in Syria, in what was certainly an unconstitutional uh, and unlawful attack on a sovereign nation just a week or two ago. So the, the, the hypocrisy and the arrogance and the condescension of hearing Mike Pence, uh, you know, say about someone else, some other nation has to behave themselves. And he used that phrase twice in the interview with Dana Bash uh, in, in uh, Korea today, I think he was. It's kind of stomach turning. It's kind of appalling. That's all. I just 
have to get that off my chest before I get to the rest of the <laughs> maddening uh, news today. Yes. But that one uh, particularly irritated me. Uh, yes, Kim Jong-un, he's, he's got to behave. He's got to behave himself. We're out there killing people all over the world in sovereign nations where we have not been invited to come in and bomb. But, uh, but North Korea, they have to behave themselves. Because we said so. And speaking, by the way, of uh, hypocrisy... Uh, and and behavior and killing people. Arkansas coming up momentarily. That's <laughs> right. The state of Arkansas's uh, planned mass execution of prisoners hit uh, several last-minute snags. Uh, one very last-minute snag within minutes of the first scheduled killing over the past uh, 24 hours. In, uh, in both state court as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll be joined momentarily by Robert Dunham of the Death Penalty Information Center to hopefully learn what the hell is going on with Arkansas's unprecedented plan to kill eight prisoners over 10 days and uh, all of these amazing, frantic legal efforts to stop it. That's coming up shortly. But first, oh, hey, it's Election Day today in Georgia. Uh, the U.S. House special election, we've been talking about it for the past couple of weeks. It's uh, today is the uh, U.S. House special election to fill the congressional seat vacated by Trump's new secretary of health and human services, Congressman Tom Price. Um, the uh, the special election is a jungle primary, which means that all the party candidates compete together at once. And unless one candidate receives more than 50 percent of the vote, the top two finishers will then have a runoff in June. And right now, Democratic candidate John Ossoff is said to be far in the lead of uh, what is a split Republican field. Ossoff has been polling uh, anywhere from 43 to 46 percent in pre-election polls. But as we discussed with Jim Dean of Democracy for America on yesterday's broadcast, which you can download at bradblog.com, uh, if if Ossoff fails to get more than 50 percent, Republicans are expected to coalesce around whichever Republican ends up winning in this very, very right-leaning district that uh, Tom Price had won last November by almost 30 points. However, Donald Trump barely won the district by just over one point. Um, so we'll have uh, full results on that uh, race, uh, such as they are tomorrow uh, on the broadcast. But here's the thing. As we've also noted, Georgia still uses 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting machines made by Diebold. And first uh, deployed back in in the state back in 2002, these machines have been hacked over and over again in the lab many times. Um, and last month, the and, and they're capable, by the way, of, of flipping an election, you know, with barely the possibility of detection. If you can get to one of these machines... You can put on a virus onto it, as uh, Princeton University discovered some years ago, uh, and that virus can pass itself from machine to machine and flip an entire election without detection. Uh, in any event, uh, in, in addition to being hacked in the labs, last month the Center for Elections at Georgia's Kennesaw State University, which programs all of Georgia's voting systems and electronic poll books, last month... That Center for Elections itself was hacked and said to have potentially exposed voter data from some seven and a half million voters. 
So, yeah, we will have whatever results are issued by the state tomorrow, and whatever they say, those will be the official results because there's virtually no way to challenge the results of an election on 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems. But all of that brings me to what was reported last night after we went off the air and as I have been hearing about all day today. No, voting machines were not stolen over the weekend in Georgia. Uh, as some, like, for example, The Hill, are still reporting today. The Hill's headline, Voting Machines Stolen Ahead of Georgia Special Election. Well, the voting machines in any event were not stolen. But yes, electronic poll books were reportedly stolen in one of the counties uh, in the special election um, uh, district for the uh, House uh, Georgia 6th District. Um, here's how WSB TV in Atlanta reported it. Critical voting machines were stolen just days before polls will open for a special election. But no, they're not actually voting machines. State officials are investigating the equipment uh, are investigating after equipment was taken from a Cobb County precinct manager's vehicle. According to Secretary of State Brian Kemp, the equipment was stolen on Saturday evening while the vehicle was parked at the Kroger on Canton Road. Nice security job. Kemp's office says Cobb County Elections waited two days to tell his office about the theft of the machines. The four so-called express poll machines were the computer uh, were, were the computers poll workers that they used to check in voters and check those off who have cast ballots. In other words, these are poll books that used to be paper. That you'd sign your name on. Now they're all computers. And now they're all stolen computers, <laughs> at least uh, at this uh, one precinct. Cobb County Elections Director Janine Eveler said the stolen machines cannot be used to fraudulently vote in Tuesday's election. Eveler said the machines have voter information on them, but that information is, quote, hard to access. So, you know... Nothing to worry about. It's hard. <laughs> it's it's difficult to get Hackers to that information. Won't no, that. they won't. Eveler said they will completely replace the machines at the Piedmont Road precinct. Uh, one voter said it should be as secure as the banks or anywhere else with our information. Well, yeah, good luck with that, uh, one voter. Um, <laughs> the the machines are are not as secure as banks. The voting machines, nor the electronic poll books, and the reason is. Uh, particularly with the voting machines, they are different from banks because when it comes to banks, you can oversee all of the transactions. You who make the transaction, the uh, the store, the bank, whoever you make it with, everyone can go back and look and make sure that transaction was exactly the way you wanted it to be. That's not the case with voting machines, which is why these touchscreens I describe as 100% unverifiable. But again, it was not the touchscreens. In this case, it was the poll books. Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported it this way, that state officials are investigating the theft of equipment from a Cobb County precinct manager's car that could make every Georgia voter's personal information vulnerable to theft. And that is... Well, for a start, that is one of the big concerns, that all of the information from all of these voters uh, could now be out there, inc including driver's licenses, names, all of that. Cobb County Elections Director uh, Eveler said the stolen machines cannot be used to fraudulently vote in Tuesday's election, but that it does contain a copy of Georgia's statewide voter file. 
The file includes, uh, as I said, driver's license, address, other data, but it does not include social security numbers. Oh, that's good. So there's that. So at least there's that hedge uh, against identity theft. Right. She said the poll book uh, that was stolen did have a flashcard with a voter list on it, but it does require some knowledge of expertise to use the machine to retrieve that information. Secretary of State Kemp released a statement on Monday saying it is unacceptable that Cobb County Elections Office waited two days to notify my office of this theft. We have opened an investigation. We're talking we're taking steps to ensure that it has no effect on the election tomorrow. I am confident that the results will not be compromised. He's a lot more confident than I am. He was also not concerned about the hack at Kennesaw State University when uh, the world's leading computer scientist and an electronic voting experts uh, begged Kemp to use paper ballots, particularly given that hack at Kennesaw, Kennesaw State University. The people who actually program the voting machines and the electronic poll books. Now, I've been uh, speaking with a lot of my election integrity uh, uh, colleagues uh, today. They have concerns even about the poll books being gone, that it might make uh, election fraud, actually voter fraud in this case, easier to pull off in a number of ways. We'll see. One of the things we'll be watching um, as we get information out of Georgia, is uh, we, are people being turned away from the polls as not registered? Are they being uh, given provisional ballots in, in larger than expected numbers? That could somehow be a result of these uh, stolen e-poll books. But just to be clear, for all of those who've been contacting me on Twitter and elsewhere, no, voting machines were not stolen in Georgia. Electronic poll books were. Um, so we will see uh, what happens. We, I'm sure we will be covering that on tomorrow's broadcast. But speaking of elections, uh, this was a jolt today from uh, Great Britain. It was, uh, as AP writes, in a year of political shocks. Prime Minister Theresa May called Tuesday for a snap election on June 8th. A general election seeking to strengthen her hand in the in uh, European Union exit talks and tighten her grip on a fractious conservative party with the labor opposition weakened. May's gamble will probably pay off. They write with an enhanced conservative majority in parliament, but it's unlikely to unite a country deeply split over the Brexit decision to quit the EU. So there's that today. I'm sure we'll have more on that in the future as we get closer to the June 8 general election in Great Britain. And over the weekend, speaking of elections and of the EU, Turkey, which is NATO's second largest military power, second only to the U.S., uh, they held a referendum. And uh, in that referendum, a slim majority of Turkish voters agreed to grant sweeping powers to their president, at least according to the officially reported results so far, in a watershed moment that the country's opposition fears may cement a system of authoritarian rule within one of the critical power brokers and key allies of the U.S., uh, in the Middle East, that would be Turkey. In the referendum uh, uh, counted on Sunday night, supporters of the proposal had 51.3% of the votes cast. Opponents had 48.7%, according to the country's Electoral Commission. That's a very tight result. The main opposition party has said they would demand a recount of about 37% of ballot boxes containing 2.5 million votes. 
after the uh, Electoral Commission decided to accept ballots di- that did not have the official seal on them for the first time ever and in violation of, uh, of the nation's law. Nonetheless, on Sunday night, um, President Erdogan hailed the victory in front of a crowd of supporters in Istanbul, even as the votes were still being tallied in that uh, unexpectedly close race. Uh, Since a failed coup last summer, Turkey has been under a state of emergency, a situation that allowed the government to fire or suspend about 130,000 people suspected of being connected to the failed putsch and to arrest about 45,000 of them. The New York Times says the campaign itself was characterized by prolonged intimidation of opposition members, several of whom were shot at or beaten while on the stump by persons unknown. The opposition has questioned the legitimacy of the referendum after the election board made that last-minute decision uh, to increase the burden needed to prove accusations of ballot box stuffing. At least three instances of alleged voter fraud appeared to be captured on camera. The uh, the deputy head of the main opposition party, the People's uh, the Republican People's Party known as CHP, said we are receiving thousands of complaints on election fraud. We are evaluating them one by one. The new system that appears to have been adopted by Turkey uh, would abolish the post of prime minister, transfer executive powers to President Erdogan. It would allow the newly empowered president to issue decrees and appoint many judges and officials responsible for scrutinizing his decisions. It would allow the president to order disciplinary inquiries into any of Turkey's three and a half million civil servants. Uh, So academics and members of the opposition are very concerned about this new system, uh, that it would threaten the separations of powers on which liberal democracies traditionally depend. But the, uh, the, the, the fearful environment in which the referendum campaign was run has also led people to uh, question the results. There were vast purges, of course, of of perceived opposition members. Uh, The authorities also prevented no campaigners from holding rallies and events. Uh, And uh, analyses of television coverage showed that the Yes campaign received disproportionately more airtime than the opponents, uh, described as a completely unfair campaign by a German lawmaker assigned by the Council of Europe to observe the elections, the uh, the OSCE. Hundreds of election observers were barred from monitoring the vote in Turkey. Thousands of Kurds were displaced by fighting in southeastern Turkey and may not have been able to vote at all because they have no address. That, according to the Independent Election Monitoring Network, the the result revealed a deeply divided country, nearly half of which now feels highly embittered. Oh, sounding familiar? Uh, I'm incredibly sad right now, said uh, one 37-year-old no voter in Istanbul. Dark days are ahead. But all of those concerns about uh, the opposition vote uh, did not apparently bother uh, Donald Trump. Questions about uh, the uh, intimidation and uh, potential fraud, that didn't bother uh, Donald Trump apparently at all. On Monday, he called the Turkish president to congratulate him on the country's contested referendum Greatly expanding presidential powers, reports AP. The move comes despite protests from opposition parties and international monitoring groups. 
as well as Trump's own State Department concerning the voting irregularities during Sunday's referendum. Opposition parties, uh, as I note, have complained about the irregularities, uh, but uh, so have the international monitors from the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. U.S. State Department spokesman uh, Mark Toner echoed the concerns by the OSCE, pointing to observed irregularities on voting day and an uneven playing field during the campaign. Erdogan nonetheless called the referendum the most democratic election ever seen in any Western country. Oh, brother. He admonished the uh, OSCE monitors to, quote, know your place. That sounds like Donald Trump, the most democratic election ever seen in any Western country. Well, no wonder Trump called and uh, congratulated him. But none of that is actually the reason why I'm bringing up the story. The reason I'm bringing all of this up is because Turkey and the European Union have spent three decades trying to unite the EU uh, and Turkey. Turkey was hoping to become a full member of the EU, but uh, this referendum uh, may put that on hold. The uh, the 28 nation EU uh, members gave uh, the results and President Erdogan uh, a chilly reception, but it got far worse when the president took the step that may have been one too far, as the Associated Press says, talking about reinstating the death penalty. EU spokesperson uh, said on Tuesday, not only is this a red line, this is the reddest of all red lines. The death penalty is outlawed in all EU nations and is a key moral benchmark of the bloc. Turkey has been uh, trying to get into the EU since 2005. But with uh, with what happened over the weekend during the referendum and now their talk of uh, restoring the death penalty, that may be the death knell for negotiations with the EU, as AP describes it. So for years, Turkey has sought to become a full member of the EU, but now their adoption of the death penalty is likely to end that plan entirely. So, hey... I guess the state of Arkansas won't be joining the European Union anytime soon either. Given their plan to execute eight prisoners in 10 days, which ran smack dab into the U.S. Supreme Court last night, the amazing story of what is going on in Arkansas right now is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That's the song of protesters with the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, singing outside of the Arkansas State Supreme Court on Monday. 
protesting what they regard as the assembly line of executions planned by Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson over the next two weeks. Along with the activists, several former death row prisoners now exonerated of the crimes they were convicted to death for, also spoke against the state's use of the death penalty on the the steps of the state Supreme Court in advance of the planned state killing of eight prisoners over 10 days that was to begin on Monday night this week. As noted in the previous segment, the nation of Turkey, now that it looks as if they are likely to introduce the death penalty in that country, will almost certainly be prevented from joining the European Union, if only for that reason. Of course, that means the U.S., with its continuing tradition of the use of the death penalty at both the state and federal levels, would also, ironically enough, be prevented from joining the European Union. And the state of Arkansas, in particular, could never be welcomed as an EU member state at this rate unless, of course, they gave up on the practice of killing their own citizens. According to the New York Times today, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson set off an international furor when, in February, he scheduled eight executions that were to take place over less than two weeks in April. The scheduled The schedule, death penalty researchers and historians noted at the time, was unequaled in the modern history of capital punishment in the U.S., which reinstated the death penalty back in 1976. Hutchinson suggested he had little choice. With Arkansas's midazolam supply set to expire on May 1, that is one of three drugs used by the state in its chemical cocktail injected into convicted death row prisoners to kill them, State authorities felt they would not be able to restock their supply of the drug easily, effectively imposing a moratorium on the death penalty itself in Arkansas. Well, that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? As the uh, as the execution dates neared, Hutchinson faced pressure to back away from his plans. And the governor's mansion in Little Rock was the scene of protests, as were the steps of the Arkansas Supreme Court, as noted Some of the most vocal opponents of the death penalty at those recent protests in Arkansas had been wrongly on death row themselves in the first place. Some of those exonerated, now freed dead men walking, spoke at one of the protests at the court on Monday. In 1994, Damien Eccles and two friends were convicted as teenagers of murder in Arkansas. Eccles was released from death row in 2011, after nearly two decades, in part thanks to DNA evidence that raised questions about his conviction, he returned to Arkansas to protest the upcoming executions, which he still refers to as the state that tried to kill him, according to an interview in The New York Times. Here he is at that protest on Monday. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to come. I didn't want to come back. Unless but when I heard about sure. the conveyor belt of death that the politicians were trying to set in motion... I guess I knew that I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't come back and try to do something. You know, if I were to just sit around and, and let these people be killed, I would have to think about that for the rest of my life. Thank you, guys. Eccles also says he was on death row with some of those scheduled to be killed this week and next in Arkansas, including one that was set to be killed last night, who Eccles says is schizophrenic, delusional, and could not even carry on a conversation. And he would stare at the TV for hours, convinced that the the chirons on the screen were sending him messages. 
1993, Paris Powell, an African-American, was convicted of murder in Oklahoma and sentenced to death at the age of 19. The sole witness to that crime recanted his testimony in 2001, saying police had coerced him into naming Powell and another defendant in exchange for a reduced sentence on drug trafficking charges. In 2013, the Oklahoma Supreme Court suspended the prosecutor who convicted Powell for abusing his office and failure to disclose evidence. Powell also spoke outside the Arkansas court on Monday. I felt the need to come down here. Uh, I don't know any of the individuals personally, uh, but I know what they're going through, of course, because I spent time on H unit death row down in McAllister, Oklahoma, and I was actually there for 12 and a half years, 16 and a half overall. The former death row inmates helped deliver petitions to the Arkansas governor's office asking for the eight planned executions over the next two weeks to not be carried out. They were apparently ignored, at least by the governor. The courts at both the state and federal levels, however, came forward with a flurry of rulings and stays and other actions over the past several days, including late last night at the U.S. Supreme Court, where the first man set to be killed on Monday night, Don Davis, was given a reprieve for now as the court voted to not overturn the state Supreme Court, which had just hours earlier in the day put a halt to Davis's planned execution. When the U.S. Supreme Court's decision came down late on Monday night, Davis had only minutes earlier finished eating what was to have been his final meal. It was the second time he received a last meal. In 2010, the last time Arkansas attempted to kill Davis, that execution was also blocked at the last minute. Before its planned mass execution spree to a night on four different nights over this week and next, Arkansas has not put any prisoner to death for some 15 years. The other killing planned for Monday night, that of Bruce Ward, had already had his execution stayed by an earlier court ruling. Well, the last-minute legal flurry in state and federal courts in Arkansas has uh, has been difficult to keep up with, to say the least. So joining us now to try to make some sense of what is going on in Arkansas right now is attorney Robert Dunham. He's the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, a national nonprofit organization that provides the media and the public with analysis and information on issues concerning capital punishment. Mr. Dunham has 25 years of experience as a capital litigator and a teacher of death penalty law. Before becoming DPIC's executive director, he was one of the leading capital appellate attorneys in Pennsylvania, arguing on behalf of the Commonwealth's death row inmates in its state and federal courts and at the United States Supreme Court. Robert Dunham, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you bet. Uh, Robert, uh, you may need to hold my hand on some of this because this is all very confusing. I, I want to get into both the state and federal legal rulings uh, that have happened in, in these Arkansas cases over the past 24 to 72 hours. Uh, and in fact, as you noted last night on Twitter, state and federal courts sort of ironically combined at the U.S. Supreme Court last night. But let me start with the broader picture here because there's so much going on. It's difficult to get my head around. Four nights of double executions over 10 days scheduled by Arkansas after they haven't killed anybody in 15 years. In your years as a capital punishment litigator, has there ever been any sort of precedent for a, for a spree like this in, in modern American history? No, there hasn't. Uh, this is 
this is completely unprecedented. No state in the modern history of the U.S. death penalty has ever attempted to carry out this many executions in such a short period of time. And in fact, only one state ever had conducted as many as eight executions in an entire month. Uh, and that was Texas, which had done it twice uh, in, the 19, uh, in 1997. So this is something that we have never seen before. Uh, and it is unprecedented both in the, uh, the number of executions and the short period of time, uh, and in the fact that it's trying to use uh, a very, very controversial and inappropriate drug in circumstances in which the execution schedule only makes things worse. Yeah, well, there was uh, there's actually uh, two different drugs, at least of the three used that have come up uh, in these court cases. Um, but as you note, all of this seems to come down, and this this truncated execution schedule seems to come down to the state supply of midazolam expiring as of the first of next month. Setting aside, Robert, the the moral question of scheduling these killings on, on, on that basis, oh, because our drug is going to expire. Uh, what sort of legal concern arises from having so many of these executions planned over this truncated and arguably arbitrarily short uh, a period of time? What, what, you know, executions uh, because only rushed because of this expiration of one of the drugs. Is, isn't that a legal concern as well? Yes, it certainly is. You know, the prisoners had already argued in court that the particular drugs that were being used uh, carried the risk of unnecessary pain and suffering. Uh, and then things were only made worse by this schedule. Uh, Twenty-five different prison wardens and former corrections directors have written to Governor Hutchison uh, and the Department of Corrections in Arkansas uh, asking them to change the schedule. Because when you carry out this many executions in such a short period of time, they say, it increases the risk that something is going to go wrong. There's only one other state that has ever attempted to carry out two executions with a drug midazolam on a single night, and that was the state of Arkansas. Uh, and that did not go well. Uh, that was the day in which Arkansas botched the execution of Clayton Lockett and then had to call off the scheduled execution of Charles Warner. And when that was the, that, Robert. That was actually Oklahoma, uh, yes. uh, uh, not Arkansas. Okay, that was Oklahoma, neighboring uh, to Arkansas. There, though, that one, I, I believe. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Did, I, did I say Arkansas? You did. Yeah. Uh, when the Oklahoma Department of Corrections uh, conducted an analysis of what went wrong, uh, they said that uh, they they interviewed all the personnel involved, and uh, they said that one of the major problems was that they felt rushed by the execution schedule. Uh, and that was two in one night. We're here talking about an execution schedule that was to set up four sets of double executions over the span of 11 days. And even within a single day, the schedule that Arkansas had set up uh, was even more compressed than what Oklahoma unsuccessfully attempted to do. The Arkansas schedule was set to have the first executions take place at 7 o'clock, and the second set of executions, the second execution to begin at 8.15. But when oh. we look at the botched executions with midazolam, we see that in the case of Joseph Wood in Arizona, it took nearly two hours for him to die. Uh, and in the cases of Ron Smith uh, in Alabama and Dennis McGuire in Ohio, uh, the deaths took more than 35 minutes. So if you're talking about uh, pressure on prison personnel, trying to get somebody into the execution chamber, yeah. trying to get the drugs, the IV lines set, uh, inserting the, the veins, the, the, uh, uh, the IV lines into the veins, 
pushing the buttons for the drugs, making sure the person is unconscious, uh, and then uh, administering the killing drugs. Uh, the idea that you can do that, have nothing go wrong, wheel out the dead body, move in the next people, next person in line, have the same set of corrections people involved in the executions, uh, it's astonishing that any state would think that that was an appropriate schedule. Mm. So the prison personnel, uh, the wardens, thought that this would create huge problems in addition to uh, creating major, major psychological trauma uh, for the prison personnel for the rest of their lives. For the personnel who have to uh, put these people to death on this schedule. Uh, it also seems on, on a, again, going back to just a legal basis here, that uh, the use of a drug expiration date uh, for, for rushing this schedule for execution w would actually seems to me to put the state at a disadvantage themselves in the courts, um, you know, d arguing that, well, we must do these executions. They must go forward. It's a legitimate, legitimate process. But we've got to do it right now because of this uh, expiration date on this drugs on these drugs. That seems like it would put the state itself at a disadvantage. You're you're the attorney here. Am I uh, am I wrong about this? Because I'm having a difficult time seeing the legitimacy of, of such an argument in court. Uh, the drugs are going to expire, so we need to kill them right away. I, that doesn't seem like a legitimate argument to make in court. Well, and I think legitimacy comes into play here in a, in a couple of different ways. Uh, this is not a valid penological reason. This is not a v valid criminal justice reason right. uh, for setting an execution schedule. Uh, we know what Arkansas thought a reasonable schedule would look like because Governor Hutchison has attempted to carry out these eight executions in the past. Uh, in 2015, uh, he set an execution schedule for these, uh, these same defendants, uh, and he scheduled the eight executions for a period of four months. Uh, the notion that uh, a reasonable schedule is 11 days uh, after you have previously set it for, uh, for four months, it just doesn't hold any water. Uh, and you also have to question the legitimacy of this uh, because it is using as the stimulus for the executions uh, what some people have described as an artificial kill-by date, you know, the same way mm. that a product has a use-by date. Uh, the state of Arkansas has decided that because the drugs, the midazolam, is going to expire uh, on April 30th, that's their artificial deadline. Uh, and that's a kill-by date that they've used to set these, uh, these eight scheduled executions. I think that's what's inflamed so many people uh, more than almost anything else. The, the schedule is bad enough, but because it's set up uh, based on an artificial kill-by date, uh, that's, offen that's offensive, and that's offensive to a lot of courts. Uh, that's offensive... Uh, to the international community. You were talking about that earlier. Uh, the international furor uh, and some of the national furor is in part because uh, this does not seem to most people uh, to be a legitimate basis to schedule execution. It certainly doesn't. Um, let's let's talk about the actual uh, court cases here that have been, uh, well, for now at least, resulted in the first two men having their uh, executions stayed there there are sort of two different legal tracks generally speaking if i understand this um in the legal argument both for and against the executions here in state court and in federal court uh and and of course there are different cases also being made for each of the prisoners as well but the uh the two executions planned for monday night 
um, as well as the other six, were blocked initially by uh, both federal and state courts. Am I am I correct about that? That's right. That's right. There were um, they were blocked. Uh, they, they were blocked by both sets of courts in different sets of legal actions. Uh, the prisoners have filed a group action uh, in federal court uh, where they were challenging the entire execution process. Uh, they were arguing that midazolam is an inappropriate drug to use uh, and that it was made, the risks were made immeasurably worse because of the compressed execution schedule. And there was an extensive evidentiary hearing. The parties were in court uh, from early in the morning to late at night over the course of four days. Uh, finishing up on Thursday, uh, the 13th of April, at after 10 o'clock at night. Uh, then on Saturday morning, uh, the federal district court issued a ruling uh, saying that after hearing all of that evidence, uh, there, there was a likelihood that the prisoners would succeed on the merits uh, on their claim that this was going to be cruel and unusual punishment. And so uh, the judge granted a preliminary injunction uh, against Arkansas carrying out the executions. At the same time that this was going on, there was uh, another unprecedented action uh, taking place in state court. It was not filed by the prisoners, and it was not filed on behalf of the prisoners. It was filed by McKesson Corporation, uh, which is a Fortune 500 company that's a major pharmaceutical distributor. Uh, And McKesson said that it had sold drugs uh, to the state of Arkansas. Uh, but it had been led to believe that they were going to be used for medical purposes. Now, the drugs were manufactured by a company called Pfizer, which is one of the major U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical manufacturers. And Pfizer, like every uh, major pharmaceutical company in the United States, has distribution regulations that it has adopted in order to keep its medicines out of the hands of prisons uh, for use in executions. The, the, the pharmaceutical companies say that the use of their medicines to kill prisoners is against their corporate mission, which is to save lives and not take lives. Well, they have a contract with all of their distributors, including McKesson, uh, that their drugs may not be distributed to prisons for the use in executions. Uh, And so when Pfizer found out by tracking its products uh, that they'd gotten into the hands of the Department of Corrections in Arkansas uh, for use in the executions, uh, they asked McKesson to do something about it. Uh, and McKesson went to Arkansas and said, "We've been. We gave you these drugs under false. Uh, you got them under false pretenses. We want them back." And they issued a refund. Uh, and then Arkansas did not return the drugs. <laughs> so McKesson went into state court saying, "This isn't their property. Uh, this is our property, uh, and you cannot allow them to use this for any reason." Uh, and the state court granted uh, a preliminary injunction, temporary restraining order uh, against the use of the medicines. These are just amazing stories when we're talking about, you know, the the uh, the lengths that uh, Arkansas in this case, but I know other states have done this as well, you know, seem to be willing to go to in order to to kill people, including lying, misrepresenting what they're, you know, the the purchase of these drugs. That's amazing to me. All right. The the state uh, court case and the federal court case. Um, well, I want to talk about the the irony that you uh, you pointed out last night on your Twitter feed, um, saying that it is remarkably ironic that the Arkansas that Arkansas seeks federal intervention, depriving its own highest court of jurisdiction in a pending case. 
explain what what that means there and and how it is that Arkansas tried to I guess overrule <clears throat> this is the Ar- Arkansas AG uh, tried to overrule its own state Supreme Court by going to the US Supreme Court that's right uh, it's it's ironic uh, in the sense that you know mostly when we talk about the enforcement of the criminal laws it's a they're a matter of state law uh, and uh, you hear so many states' rights arguments uh, that the federal government should just back out of this uh, and let the states handle it themselves. The states, they say, uh, are the most capable. They're involved at the local level. Uh, we're the ones who are doing these things. Leave us alone. Uh, and so what happened here was, uh, in a separate action, uh, the state Supreme Court uh, said that the two executions scheduled for Monday should be put on hold because they might have issues involved in them that are similar to an issue that's going to be argued in the United States Supreme Court this coming Monday. <laughs> so the Arkansas Supreme Court said, uh, we don't know whether the death sentences imposed in these cases uh, are constitutional. We don't know uh, whether uh, Arkansas provided the appropriate process in these cases. Uh, there was, there, they both had mental health issues, and the question was, whether the defendants had been provided an appropriate mental health expert. Um, And Arkansas Supreme Court says, hold on, we're going to wait for guidance, we're going to see what happens. The Arkansas Attorney General's office said they were going to take that up to the United States Supreme Court, saying that Arkansas, its own Supreme Court, had misinterpreted federal constitutional law. (laughs) Well, that's wrong in a couple of ways. First, it's wrong because the Arkansas Supreme Court hadn't made any judgment at all about federal constitutional law. It simply said that under its state procedures, it was going to give these prisoners an opportunity uh, to find out whether they had been unconstitutionally deprived of a mental health expert in their case. So the Arkansas State Supreme Court hadn't made any substantive judgment at all. Uh, The other thing that was ironic about it is that uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court is the arbiter of of Arkansas law. What it says about Arkansas procedures goes, so long as the procedures it establishes are not unconstitutional. You almost never see uh, a state attorney general's office going up to the United States Supreme Court saying that the chief court in its state has acted improperly, especially when what they've done is a matter of state law and has nothing to do with federal legal procedures. Yeah, especially when you've got, yeah, as you as you note, these, these states' rights uh, uh, folks, uh, you know, they want small government, they want local rule, state rule, keep the feds out of this, unless, I guess, they get an adverse opinion in, in court from that from those state authorities. Uh, but just to be clear, so the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, uh, Supreme Court Robert Dunham, they're going to hear oral arguments next week on an, I think it's an Alabama case, uh, right. so, and if that argument, if that uh, case goes the petitioner's way, that might otherwise block the execution of some of these men set to die in Arkansas. So if I understand that correctly, simply waiting for that case to be heard could somehow let some of these men off the hook. And that is what Arkansas, one of the things that Arkansas does not want to wait for, does not want to wait until the, the Supremes get to determine this issue. Uh, that's basically correct. Uh, and if you look at the pleadings, if you look at the pleadings that are filed in uh, in, in these cases, uh, the prisoners raise a number of legal claims. Uh, some of them relating to innocence. Some of them relating to 
uh, deficient representation, some of them relating to mental illness or intellectual disability. And the first argument uh, in response uh, from the Attorney General's office in Arkansas uh, is not that there is no legal merit to the claim. Uh, it's that the claims are procedurally defaulted and the courts shouldn't hear them at all. So the default response uh, by the state of Arkansas uh, isn't that what we did was right. The default response is that the courts shouldn't listen and shouldn't give, uh, give a hearing uh, on these issues. I think that one of the key things that's been overlooked uh, in all of the furor uh, and rightful furor uh, about this uh, compressed execution schedule uh, is that the court system has failed in these cases. Uh, we hear the attorney general's office and we hear the governor uh, talking about the cases have been in the courts for years uh, and the prisoners have uh, exhausted all of the legal avenues that are available to them. Uh, and from a procedural standpoint, that's certainly the case. The problem is uh, they are confusing the difference between length of time in the process and having quality representation in the process. Mm. The state of Arkansas provided these men inappropriately poor representation at critical stages of the proceedings, at trial and in what's called the state post-conviction process. And under the old rules uh, of habeas corpus, if you hadn't raised a claim in state court, you didn't get to raise it in federal court. So the rules were a state could get the advantage of providing bad enough representation for a long enough period of time so that the defendant would then, when he got quality representation in federal court, not be able to raise the claims. Mm. The prisoners now are attempting with new counsel to raise claims that rightly should have been raised earlier. Uh, the question is going to be whether the courts, when they look at them, are going to say that you've met the new very high threshold uh, that you have, to, you have to meet when you're this late in the proceedings. Uh, and even though there may be meritorious claims, even though they may be able to demonstrate that they were unconstitutionally convicted or unconstitutionally sentenced to death, that may not be enough to prevent them from ultimately being executed. Mm. So disturbing on so many levels, uh, uh, Robert. Uh, let me, before we let you go, because I, 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 I suspect we're going to see we're going to see the same uh, panic and, and uh, legal uh, uh, flurry at the state and federal courts now over the next two weeks, are we not, with the, with the rest of these? There are still two, two of these prisoners for now are off the hook, I guess. Uh, the other six are still scheduled to be killed over the next 10 days. I, am I correct? That's right. Stacey Johnson and Led L. Lee uh, are scheduled to be executed this coming Thursday, uh, and both of them uh, have filed motions seeking uh, access to DNA evidence. Both of them uh, have claims of, uh, of actual innocence. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. They have, uh, not, they have not had DNA testing uh, presented yet in their cases? Well, they're arguing that there are developments in DNA testing that could make a difference in the case. Okay. Uh, we're talking about old cases. Okay. Uh, so it's not the same type of, uh, of DNA uh, testing. Uh, and in, in the cases... You know, the DNA may, uh, may show that it was an alternate suspect who did it. Uh, it may show that the defendant, uh, there's no biological evidence uh, linking the defendant to the murders. Uh, but again, the question at this stage of the proceedings isn't whether there's reasonable doubt 
as to whether they were guilty or not. Uh, it's whether they can meet a high standard of showing that no reasonable juror could have convicted if they'd known about this evidence. Robert, uh, before you, before I let you go, last question here. D- doesn't this panic uh, in this, in the, frankly, as I see it, insanity here in, in, in Arkansas, doesn't it really underscore once again that the death penalty, at least, at the very least, by lethal injection, may have now run its course in the U.S. And I know that, uh, don't worry, I think Mississippi, they've uh, talked about reinstating the death penalty with firing squad. But it sure sure as hell seems like... um, you know, I mean, what what happens when the when the midazolam supply is no longer available? I mean, this this whole thing seems to be just utter madness. I know you guys are nonpartisan at uh, the Death Penalty Information Center, but y- your thoughts on how the death penalty at this point now even makes sense in this country? Well, I think that uh, there there are two there there are two quick issues here. The first is method of execution. The second is the death penalty as a whole. And when it comes to method of execution, uh, it's, it's clear to most people uh, that the, pharma, the pharmacy companies and the medical community want nothing to do with lethal injection. So states are faced with the prospect of deciding how are they going to carry out executions if they're going to have it. Now, they have two problems. The first problem is that most Americans think lethal injection is okay as a method of execution so long as it isn't botched, but uh, it's very difficult now uh, for the states to obtain the drugs. Uh, and they've engaged in all sorts of improper conduct in attempting to do it. The second problem is if they shift to a different execution method, there isn't a single other method of execution that Americans think is okay. Uh, They think that hanging, uh, firing squad, beheading, uh, electric chair, they think that all of those are cruel and inhumane. So legislators are faced with the prospect of a method of execution that's becoming harder and harder to carry out, and other methods of execution that the American public just don't want. Oh, uh, give us a chance, Robert. Never underestimate Americans' interest in in killing our our own people. We'll figure out how to do it. Robert Dunham, uh, the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. You can and should check out their work at deathpenaltyinfo.org. And you can find uh, and and you should follow uh, Robert's Twitter feed over the next week or two. I suspect it will be lively. You can find him on the Twitters at R Dunham DPI. Robert, really helpful talking to you about all of this. Thank you so much. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the near future. That would be my pleasure. Thank you, Robert. All right, a quick break, and we're running late, but we will nonetheless come back with uh, Oh, Desi, your people in oh, Texas. Good. Oh no. But it's not about the death penalty, incredibly enough. So a quick break, and we're back with uh, a little bit more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The stars at night are big and bright, keeping the heart of 
You are uh, legally required to do that. Wait, 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 hold on. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm saying I, you're legally required to, uh, well, to it's, do it's that. Genetic. Being I can't from help Texas, it. you uh, you have to do that. Or I you'll have get to a clap you have at the right the moment. Clap. That's right. Uh, so we got a, a quick story here about Texas. Des, uh, the good news for you, I know whenever we talk about Texas, it's usually not good news for you. But uh, the good news for you and our listeners, this is not about the death penalty, even though it's about Texas. Uh, The results of an annual poll released Tuesday reveal how Texans feel regarding immigration. Oh, boy. I see that look on your face. (laughs) The uh, Texas Lyceum, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group, conducts uh, and releases their uh, results of their poll annually. The 2017 poll was conducted April 3 through April 9. It queried 1,000 adult Texans. And the Texas Lyceum uh, said on Tuesday that this was the first year that the poll covered the issue of immigration. The results of the poll revealed that Texans believe that immigration is the number one issue facing the state and the nation. How do you feel about that so far, Des? I think that's ridiculous, but that's what they think. Those are your people. However, 62% of Texans polled said that immigration helps the United States more than it hurts. That seems a little contradictory. Well, they, but they think it, the younger uh, the respondent was, the more oh. positively they viewed immigration. But sixty-two okay. percent. You should be happy. Your people finally, finally got it right for a change. <laughs> also, sixty-one percent of Texans opposed Donald Trump's proposal to build a wall on the border of the U.S. and Mexico in order to stop illegal immigration. Sixty-one percent. And 62% of those polls responded no to the question, do you want Trump to deport millions of illegal immigrants currently living in the U.S.? Your people got it right, Desi. You should be celebrating. You seem so uh, frightened after I brought up the the state of Texas. Well, usually it's bad news. Usually it is. But in this case, they got it right. And uh, so, you know, think about that. Uh, A huge majority, 61 and 62% of uh, Texans, seem to be getting it right on uh, on the wall, on immigration, on Donald Trump. Uh, that's kind of amazing. That so, is. Uh, with all the terrible news today, I thought I would end it with some decent news. You're welcome. <laughs> and thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer. Uh, also, my thanks to my guest today, Robert Dunham of the Death Penalty Information Center. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download all the broadcasts anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks also to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we do here over your public airwaves. Uh, you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 